the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always happy when you join us here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. We get on the air uh, because of Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer. And Andrew Herdlisk is our producer. And guest number one today is Judge Carolyn Parr. She's in Annapolis, Maryland. Her new book is out. It is called Love's Way, Living Peacefully with Your Family as Your Parents Age. Judge Parr, uh, great to talk to you. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me on your show. Carolyn, what's the background of this book? Well, uh, I was a judge for 16 years, and then I retired and became a mediator because I wanted to help people make peace and stay out of court. And I had a partner, a mediation partner, Sid Cohen, and he and I started to see a lot of families coming for mediation who had disputes between siblings about the care of an older parent, or we sometimes had parents who... um, wanted us to help them deal with their children um, and their adult children. So, and then in the meantime, I was also taking care of my parents at home and Sig was taking care of his mother long distance. So we thought between us and the clients that we had, we had plenty of material for books to help people resolve these problems themselves, to help families live peacefully. You open your book with a chapter called, Not Your Grandma's Old. <laughs> What's that about? That's right. Well, that's about the assumptions that people often make about older people. People uh, say over 70. And uh, when we were children, we used to think 50 was old, you know. <laughs> but uh, that's changed. Uh, older people now are familiar with the Internet, and uh, they manage their health better. They stay active, uh, and they live very fully uh, up until they die often. And so what happens when children underestimate their parents or other people underestimate older people is that they tend to infantilize them, they tend to move in on them and decide they should make decisions for them. At some point, it may be necessary for the role changing to happen, the role reversal. But um, that doesn't really need to happen until a parent is pretty much incapacitated. Uh, Although parents uh, enjoy it when their kids volunteer to help them, maybe lift heavy things or help them with a problem with their computer and... um, Take up, start taking over some things that they're invited to take over. They don't enjoy it when kids helicopter over them, like uh, helicopter parents we hear about. Those are helicopter children, and start telling them what they have to do with their life. So it's about that tension between safety, worried about your parents' safety, which is a loving thing to worry about, and uh, the parents wish for autonomy and to remain in charge of their life as soon as possible. So a lot of conflicts arise around that. Let's move to the second topic that you write about, transforming fear and anger. Well, a lot of times the reason generations don't talk to each other is because of fear. And by that I mean they're afraid they're going to hurt each other's feelings, or they're afraid the other person's going to get mad and offended, uh, or they may be afraid they might have to change some of their own ideas because they might be wrong about something. Um, they may be making uh, assumptions, which we get on in a little later chapter, that are not true. Um, so how do you overcome that fear in order to start a conversation that's going to be difficult, but that needs to happen? 
and that's what that chapter is about. Now and, let's uh, let's get to this one, Carolyn. Can we just talk? Question mark. <laughs> that's about the nuts and bolts, actually, of having a hard conversation. Um, we talk about how you can get it started. Uh, for example, let's say children want and need to know whether their parents have a will, but they don't want to offend the parent by, they're afraid the parent will think they're waiting for them to die and get their money. Uh, and Or maybe the parent wants to talk to the kids about their will, and the kids don't want to hear it because they don't want to think about their parents dying. And... Uh, so there are ways to start those conversations. One is to start it by talking about somebody else, maybe yourself. So uh, an adult child could say, you know, Mom, I'm thinking about getting a will, and I wonder who you used for a lawyer. <laughs> or, um, you know, do you, uh, do you have a will? Uh, could you give me some advice? Something like that. Or talk about Uncle John. You know, Uncle John died without a will, and it was really a mess for our cousins. You have a will, don't you? You know, something like that. Or would you like, if if the parents do have a will, you could say, well, I don't need to know what's in it, but I'd like to know where it is if I need it and who the executor is or what responsibilities you expect us to take. And then a parent can maybe start talking about that. Sometimes parents don't want to talk about money with their kids because they don't want to... Uh, discourage their ambition if they're going to get a lot of money. They don't. They want them to try to work and you know develop themselves so they can be self-supporting. Or if the parent isn't leaving them much or has a debt, like for example an IRS lien on the family home, they may be embarrassed and don't want to talk about that. Uh, or they don't want to encourage greed if they feel like the kids are just waiting you know, for the money to come in and calculating how much they're going to get. And for one thing, you don't know how much you're going to leave until you are practically at death's door because you don't know what you're going to need in terms of the nursing home or home care, those kind of things. So uh, we don't particularly encourage people to tell the kids how much money they're going to get, but we do think they need to at least tell them where the will is and who the executor is and... Uh, things about the mechanics of the will, and also if there's a, if they're not planning to give the same amount to each child, sometimes they want to give on the basis of need. You know, one kid is doing really well in life and the other kid is struggling. They need to explain that to the child who's going to get less ahead of time and say, this is what I'm thinking, your brother's having a hard time. Or your brother wants to be an artist and you're a doctor and you've got a good fixed income, but he doesn't. What do you think if I give him more? Would you feel bad about it? Because it's certainly not a sign of my love for you. So it's good to explain that to a child if you're going to do that. Uh, another reason is that the children will never blame the parent for an unequal distribution. They'll blame the other child that gets the most. So. Well... It's important now to move to the next topic, Carolyn. Dumb and dangerous assumptions. What is that about? Well, an assumption is something that's based not on facts but on a guess about what another person's motives might be. Um, it's something like it might start with he's lazy, might be name-calling or categorizing. Or uh, she can't be trusted, or she just wants X, Y, and Z. Instead of asking questions and listening to the other person, uh, it might be based on uh, oughts and shoulds, like all children ought to contribute to helping with their parents' care. Uh, I think... Many of us would agree with that, but there may be times when some children live farther away from the parent. Uh, some ch children may be employed and have young children still at home, and uh, it's harder for them to help the parent than another one. So people can get real angry about their assumptions when what they need to do is ask questions that are 
not accusations, not accusatory, but uh, to find out information and try to walk in the other person's shoes before you make uh, conclusions about their motives. Our guest, and we're having a good chat with Judge Carolyn Parr. She's in Annapolis, Maryland. Her book is called Love's Way. Uh, We will be back right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando, Florida. Judge Carolyn Parr is with us from her home in Annapolis, Maryland. We're talking about her book, Love's Way. And Carolyn, we've arrived at this topic, siblings in war and peace. Yes. Sibling rivalry doesn't always end when children grow up. (laughs) And it can become especially acute, acute when a parent is aging and there's money involved. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this is one of the things that often disturbs parents and uh, cause them to want to uh, call in an, an expert like a mediator or somebody because the parent will be very disturbed that the children are, don't like each other or are fighting about something. Um, sometimes the root of this is, in fact, that the parent has shown favoritism to one child or another and when they were little and continues to do that. So a, in a family like this, the parent who wants to make peace needs to uh, acknowledge if they were less attentive to one child, there may have been a good reason. You know, There may have been a time in the family when other stuff was going on or one kid was more sickly and needed more attention, but the other child felt left out, or uh, there are dozens of reasons. If, if a parent is aware of that and they think that's the cause of the problem, they should apologize and ask for forgiveness, even though, it, and explain the situation. It may have not been something that could help. Um, if if the problem is some unforgiven slight between the siblings, let's say the brother broke a sister's favorite doll on purpose because he was mad at her or something, and she's never liked it since, mm. um, then it just needs to be talked about and aired, and preferably with a third person there, maybe a mediator, maybe a pastor, maybe uh, an aunt or uncle who everybody in the room trusts, um, who can be a peacemaker. And we give some specific suggestions about peacemaking. Like one is to uh, reframe uh, a statement that one person makes. Let's say one person says, well, I don't trust him because he lies all the time. And the peacemaker can say, you remember. You seem to remember things differently, <laughs> and uh, so you don't trust him because he remembers things differently than you do. Something like that. So they don't deny or argue with a person's perception, but you try to soften it, and because the other person is sitting there too, and uh, you could say the peacemaker could say, "Can you give me an example of that?" And then the person will tell a story, and then the other person can say, "Well, you." You didn't remember that right, or you left out some facts or, you know, something, and get it straightened out. Um, But the sibling rivalry can be really vicious and really ugly uh, as a parent gets older and it needs to be dealt with. And one of the ways to deal with it is, you know, uh, confession and forgiveness. And, of course, those are Christian virtues, but they're harder to practice than they are to say. I want you to talk to us about scaling the Twin Peaks of paperwork and planning. Okay. Uh, One of the biggest mistakes that parents make is not to plan their later years. For example, I'm not talking about financial planning particularly or um, retirement, but I'm talking about at the very end. Um, what, What kind of treatment do you want or not want? If you have a fatal illness, Do you want to just have palliative care? Do you want to go to a hospice? 
where do you hope to die? Do you hope to die at home and not in a, uh, you know, in a hospital if you can help it? Um, those kinds of issues need to be talked about with your children because, in fact, they may be the ones making the decision. Also, if you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, then you want to talk to the kids about how you want to live the most fully that you can in the time that you have left, not just be waiting to die. So, for example, you might have cancer and it's very advanced and you know you're going to die and you've tried chemo and it didn't work. Uh, but there may be things you want to do. There may be people you want to see. Um, before you die. You maybe want to live long enough to attend somebody's wedding or graduation or the birth of a child. And um, so you need to express those wishes. And also to tell the children where you want to be buried. Do you want to be cremated or not? Do Do you want a funeral or some kind of a celebration of life? And who do you want to even have speak at your funeral? So these things are hard to talk about. But it's so helpful to the children, and if they all hear the same thing, so there's not going to be a fight when you're in the hospital and the doctor says, we need to pull this plug, and can we have your permission? And one kid says, absolutely not. And the other children say, but that's what mom would wanted. Uh, mom needs to tell everybody what she would want. Now, Carolyn, it's time to talk about caring, giving, and receiving. Okay, uh, I've been a personal caregiver for both my parents. They came to live with me and my husband when they were in their 90s, and my mother had Alzheimer's, and my father was not trying to take care of her, but he had stage 4 cancer. And uh, so my husband and I invited him to come and live with us because it was just the way we got my dad to agree. He was so independent and said he could handle everything but it was clear that he was could not continue to handle everything. Uh, they were still living in Lakeland, and I had to. I was working, and I had to fly down there whenever anything happened, like when he got sick, then there was nobody to look after Mom. And anyway, it got to be a real hard thing for me, and so I told my dad it would be a real favor to me if you would come and live with us or live close to us. And Jerry's all for it. He'd be totally happy with that. And um, so he did because, you know, parents may feel they want to keep their autonomy. And I told they they had an apartment in our house, and they could keep their autonomy. And Daddy could still control what went on in his apartment, and they would eat most of their meals with us, but not all of them. And um, he was still driving, which was another issue we had to deal with later. But um, that's that's the thing about caregiving. Another thing is the average caregiver in the United States, unpaid caregiver of older people, of presumably parents, is a 48-year-old woman with a child still at home and a part-time job and a husband. And it's such a strain. It's a, It's really a societal issue because getting help costs so much money and that normal working-class people can't afford it. And so they have to do it themselves. And often parents, of course, would prefer that their children take care of them than a stranger. Uh, but it it puts a real stress on everybody. And often there are out-of-pocket expenses that the caregiver has to come up with or wants to. They may need to pay for somebody's heat bill or buy groceries or different different things. So uh, caregiving is a big issue in families. Um, there's also the problem that comes up with one kid gets all the responsibility and they're trying to involve their siblings and some siblings don't want to be involved. Some siblings who live away uh, may come in to visit the mother and criticize everything that's happening and then they leave. We call that the swooper. Because they swoop in and swoop out and leave chaos in their wake. <laughs> that happens. Um, and so we talk about ways to share the load, uh, things that 
kids who don't live close by can ways they can participate in the parents' care and life. For example, they could offer to come for a week or two weeks and give the child who's taken care of the family a vacation. Or and that gives them time along with the parents too, which is precious for everybody. Where they could take the parent on a vacation. Um or they can certainly, at the very least, call the parent once a week and talk to them, find out what they're doing, offer to send money if a, to give the uh, caregiving child a break so they can get a housekeeper or they can get some kind of help. Uh, all of those things are ways that uh, they can help. Sometimes they can help by doing income tax returns for the parents or taking over the parents' finances. You can do a lot of things online now, you don't always have to be present to do some of those things. Now so I w- that's, it's also important for the parents to know that all their kids love them and mm-hmm. want to participate. Carolyn Parr. Yes. She's a judge, retired judge. Her book is called Love's Way. Carolyn, talk to us about letting go the path to freedom. Well, as you get older... You deal with two things primarily. It's a developmental stage, actually. It's not necessarily decreasing, but you have to learn how to handle your losses and you're worrying about your legacy. So not only in money, but what feelings you leave behind with your kids, that kind of thing, memories. Um, So dealing with loss is... it starts, you know, from the time you're middle age, and your vision stop starts to go, or you can't run the marathon anymore, or don't want to. Uh, and it then it gets you lose your. Eventually, you're going to probably retire and or lose your job because there is a lot of prejudice against older workers now. Um, and so then you have to decide, who am I if I'm not in my career anymore? And uh, you're, you get an empty nest, your kids all leave home, and maybe nobody lives around anymore, close by. Um, at some point, you lose your health if you live long enough. Uh, and then you might lose your spouse. And so all of those... Uh, getting older can be a period of grief, but it can also be... There's growth in learning to let go, let go of your things give away stuff, uh, be willing to move if you need to to a smaller place to downsize, um, and living, learning to live in the moment and to pre- treasure each moment because you know that life is getting shorter and shorter. And try, having time to make amends with people you need to who you're out with and uh, all those those are the tasks of old age and uh, starting to confront your own demise and your own death. And people who can maneuver that can be very, very happy into their old age uh, because you learn to be satisfied with what you have, with the health that you have, with the home that you have, uh, with the money and possessions that you have, and with the people around you, is, uh, with your church, friends, and you can continue to be useful, too, into old age. You can still pray for people, even if you're bedridden. Uh, you can write birthday cards and thank you notes to people. There are lots of things that you can continue to do, and many older people can do much more than that. So, uh, that's, that's what that's about, letting go. Carolyn, the next topic is dying and death. Uh, what do you write here? Well, I've just dealt with a little bit about it. Uh, there is a uh, a doctor, uh, his last name is Bayok, who specializes in uh, hospice care. And he said there are four things that dying people most want to hear. They most want to say and they most want to hear. Uh, 
One is thank you. Uh, one is please forgive me. One is I forgive you. And one is I love you. And I think those four things are wonderful to remember and to say to somebody who's dying as appropriate. Uh, but there are also things that we need to say to each other and families as we go along, not to wait until we're dying. My guest has been Judge Carolyn Parr. His, her book, Love's Way. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Judge Carolyn Parr, our guest in that first segment uh, from Annapolis, Maryland. Mark Moore is in Phoenix. He's the teaching pastor at Christ Church of the Valley. He's got an interesting new book out. It's called Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Mark, welcome. I hope things are well with you. Thank you. Very well. Mark, I want to know the three-pronged strategy that you used for putting this project together. <laughs> well, the, uh, initially, we started, we started with, with a problem, and that is how to get people to read the Bible. And what we discovered was, and this was actually a major research project across the Valley of Phoenix, over 100,000 people were interviewed whether they want to know the Bible better. 80% of people in the church say, yes, I want to know the Bible better. Mm-hmm. Here's what was really interesting. Of those that were interviewed, 60% who said, I want to know the Bible better, didn't go to any church at all. Mm. And so suddenly we realized the problem is not wanting, getting people to want to read the Bible. They already want to. The problem is in the way we're delivering it. And the, the difficulty that people have, and you know this, everybody listening knows this, you want to know the Bible better, but it's a big book, and it's an old book. It's, it's because it's a big book, where do I start? And a lot of people, this natural start in Genesis. Okay, Genesis is cool, but you get to Leviticus about February of your New Year's Bible reading plan, and it goes the way of your gym membership. How can you get people to sustain reading the Bible over a long period of time? That's the second problem. It's an old book, and so people get lost along the way. Like, I don't understand all the priestly vestments or maybe some of the geography. With minimal, and I mean minimal coaching, like a tour guide when you're going through Paris, or maybe if you travel abroad, you have someone help you learn how to order or learn how to greet with minimal coaching. Suddenly people can see the color of the culture within the Bible. And so Core 52 is designed primarily to remove the two barriers that keep people from reading the Bible. That is, it's a big book. It's an old book. If I give you the 52 verses with the greatest ROI, you you continue to be engaged because every week you're reading something that has historically made a great difference to people in the church. How did you pick these 52 verses? Yeah, it wasn't, that's a great question. It wasn't exactly random. So I, I spent 22 years as a college professor at a Christian university training pastors. So from a theological side, uh, I've just got a sense of which of those passages actually have more tentacles out into other theological uh, areas. So, for example, Genesis 1-1, God created the, the heavens and the earth. That is repeated throughout the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets. It even drives clear through Revelation. So that was one half of it. The other half is, I have always been active preaching in churches, and now as a teaching pastor of, uh, of the church here in Phoenix, I, I watch as people's lives are transformed, not by every verse in the Bible. In the, every verse is equally inspired. Not every verse is equally empowered for transformation. So based upon my experience as a, as a pastor in the local church and as a theologian in the academy, I looked at those verses with the greatest ROI 
when people invest in them. Now, some people are going to look at the 52 and go, why didn't you include this one? Like, I get it. And that's fair. But the power of this program is that every verse that you engage in opens a door to a corridor of other verses so that once you open that door, you, you are going to engage in literally hundreds of other passages, but you can do it on your own because of the minimal coaching in the core 52 verses. So what do you want us to know about Genesis 1-1? Oh, such a, it, it, it is one of the most pivotal of, like if I did core five, it would be in, in the core five. Because one of the questions that every human being asks is, how did I get here? And what is the meaning of life? Right? Everybody asks that. Mm-hmm. Genesis 1-1 gives a, a qualitatively unique answer. If you look at all the creation accounts of the ancient world, so like the Babylonian epic of Enuma Elish, a lot of people say, well, the Bible is just one creation account that God created the, the world. No, actually, that's not true. It says something that literally no other ancient story says, and it makes all the difference in the world to answering the question that everyone answers. In the other accounts, matter is eternal. And the gods are created out of matter. In the biblical account, it's opposite. That matter is an extension of God's creation. And why does that matter? Because if gods are part of matter, and I'm part of matter, then all of us, God is not eternal, I am not eternal, and my life doesn't have the same kind of meaning. If, however, the eternal God, out of himself, created me, then I am part of his divine nature. I'm not divine, but I have this divine essence, which leads, well, one practical application is the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights. So even in the, in the practical application of, say, racism or environmentalism or respect for uh, male, males and females, all of that impinges on that one verse of creation. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but part of the other unique thing about the creation account is it is actually Trinitarian, that God the Father creates, He creates through the Logos, who is the Son, and in verse 2, the Spirit is hovering over the chaotic waters. So unlike a bare, uh, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, as Christians, we actually understand, for example, that the Holy Spirit was part of creation embedded in life-giving, not just to humans, but to every animal, to every plant. So the way we approach environmental issues, for example, we don't just use the environment. It is the human responsibility to care for, augment, and improve the environment. So correctly read, Genesis 1-1 would lead a Christian to say that God created the heavens and the earth, but I partner with God in creating the world that's full of wonder of technology and relationships and cultures and cities. That's just one small application. Mark, you mentioned the Holy Spirit. Um, What do you teach people about the role of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life? Yeah, uh, obviously, reams of books have been written on that. If you were to ask me to just narrow it down to one thing, I would talk about, the Greek word is parakletos, the paraclete, the person who comes alongside. And the number one role of the Holy Spirit, we'll actually get into this in, in 452, number one role of the Holy Spirit, is not miracles, it's not judgment, it's actually coaching verbally. So the Holy Spirit is a master of communication through all kinds of processes, from, from the inspiration of Scripture to the, uh, in, the impulses in our own hearts and minds, the relationships He creates. If I could only teach people one thing about the Holy Spirit, I would, 
uh, we try to teach them how to listen to the Spirit mm-hmm. in the manifold ways, because I, I've said it colloquially this way, the Holy Spirit is always talking. If you haven't heard Him today, it's not because He's not speaking to you, but because you haven't been attentive to what He's saying. Mm. And in the in the practical ministry, I mean, I, I'm dealing with about five different couples right now, everything from addictions to marriage counseling, and I just hurt for them because the answers are in front of them. The coaching is in front of them if they'll just slow down long enough to have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. The, the fact is, we are closer to the Holy Spirit on this earth, in this plane, than the disciples were to Jesus, who came in a body for 33 years. Hmm. So the bottom line is, we've got to be constantly listening in some sort of a quiet setting. Yeah, and I, if, you, if you plow through all of Scripture and look at the Holy Spirit's communication, He communicates—I'm sit, sitting outside watching a couple doves, drink some water from a puddle. Mm. It seldom rains in Phoenix. It just did last night. And I think, wow, what it, the Holy Spirit's talking to me right now, mm. saying, I will provide water in the desert, even for these birds, and you're more important than it. But I haven't paid attention to it until just now. So through the Bible, you see the Holy Spirit speaking through the physical creation, through plants and animals, through parents, through counselors, through pastors, through music, through preaching, through books that you read, through the wind that gently courses through the air. If we can pay attention to how present the Holy Spirit is in creation, again, going back to Genesis 1-2, hovering over the chaotic waters, he's in your marriage, he's in your home, he's in the art gallery, he's on the radio. Listen, because he is speaking to you right now. Mark Moore is our guest. Uh, there are Christian books, folks, and then... <clears throat> A book like this comes along, uh, which is at a different level. It's called Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Uh, Mark, we could probably do a 12-hour show, you know, to cover all this, but uh, I want to move right to your second uh, verse, our true identity. God said, let us make man in our image— uh, what do you write here uh, for for verse number two? What do you? What's the story here? Well, Genesis one twenty six. Again, I might put that in the top five as well. Really, because it's it's one of the other questions that every human being, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, everybody wants to know: Who am I? And the answer that's been given in our culture, at least through Darwinian evolution, is: You are. You are prime from slime. You just evolved, and so our sexuality has reflected that. It's just a physical experience. Our use of money has reflected that. Our, our marriages have, have reflected that. I, uh, my marriage is only as good as what I can get out of you. But Genesis tells a different story, that we actually are created from, again, a Trinitarian God. God said, let us make man in our own image. So here's one application that I think is powerful from that. You were created out of community for community. So when people try to discover who they are individualistically, they will always fail. Because I am not the inside of an onion that I peel. I am the totality of the relationships of my parents to me, my wife to me, my kids to me, my friends to me. And that's why the church is so important, and not just the big church celebrating on the weekends, but the transformation of small groups and accountability groups, because you are made in community for community. Here's something else I think really powerful. God demands worship. In fact, I hope this isn't heretical to say on the radio, I think God needs worship. Mm. His identity craves recognition. So do you and I. You and I both, you know, talking on the radio or talking to people, we want to be, all of us want to be recognized. 
that outside of God's leadership and sovereignty in our lives, that was the sin, getting into the third verse of, of, of Eve at, at, the, at the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, her mistake was not wanting, her mistake was not that she wanted to be recognized. We all do. Her mistake was wanting to be replace God as the source of recognition for everybody else. My guest is Mark Moore. He uh, joins us from Phoenix. His new book, Core 52. We've got more with Mark Moore right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Mark Moore is our guest. He's in Phoenix. His new book is out. It's called Core 52. Mark, um, you move to the third verse, and we're still in Genesis. This is Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Tell us why uh, Genesis 3, 6 is in the book. This answers a core question that all of us have. What's, what's my problem? And I know I've experienced this. I, daily, I've experienced this. I want to do what's right. I, I really do. I'm a good guy. You're, our listeners, they're good, they're good men, good women. So why is it that we struggle so much to do good when we want to be good? And Genesis offers an, an, an answer. If this were not religion, just say philosophy, it would be amazing philosophy. This trumps Aristotle, Socrates, Zeno, Mino, Alexander the Great, all of them. Because it answers why I have such difficulty doing what I know is right and uh, what I want to do. And it comes down to this. Eve was not tempted because it was a delight to the eyes, nor was she tempted because it was good for food. She was tempted because it was desirable to make one wise. In other words, she wanted to replace God on the throne of her life. All of us do that. The core sin is not sexuality or thievery or murder, the core sin is pride. And underneath all of our attempts to make ourselves grandiose in God is this false pride. And you know, Jesus gave an answer, sit at the lowest seat. And Jesus wasn't saying merely be humble. He was saying, I'm going to show you how to be great. And when people actually get a hold of, if you're a CEO in a Fortune 500 company, you practice servant leadership, you will overcome the sin in the garden. You can't, God wants us to be great. He wants us to be influential and powerful and successful, but to do it under his lordship, because outside of that, that line, outside of those barriers, we'll all go off the rail. Mark Moore is with us. Mark, uh, fourth verse, and we're still in Genesis, Genesis fifteen six. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why is that verse in the book? Well, because we all want to have a relationship with God. I, I assume all our listeners do. How do you do that? And as I look through all of the Bible, I cannot find, with the possible exception of Balaam, a single individual who ever had a relationship with God that was outside a covenant relationship with God. And I think in our individualistic culture, where everyone wants to personally connect with God, and even a lot of people say, well, I connect with God when I'm out hunting or I'm fishing. I don't mm. connect with him in church. Really, the physical creation of God bears his fingerprints, but his voice, his face, his portrait, that is in the body of Christ. Covenant is the mechanism that God has chosen to have a relationship with those that he calls his children. Mark, for the fifth verse, you jump all the way from Genesis 15, 6 to Leviticus. 
11.45. It's called Holiness. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Uh, Tell us about that verse. It it goes, the heart of this verse for me goes clear back to when I was 22 years old. Mm. It was my very first church. And there was an elderly woman there, probably 70 years old, grew up Catholic all her life. And she started coming to our church, and one day she asked me, what, is it, what does it mean to be a saint? Because for her, saints were these super special people, and they had to do miracles and all that. And I said, you realize you're a saint? She said, no, I'm not. Oh, honey, yes, you are. And when I showed her that being a saint was because of what Christ had done for us, not what we had done for him, it changed her life. And from 22 years now to 56 years old, I keep seeing people want to be holy, but they keep trying to do it on their own, where Christ has already done everything that we need to be holy. And that goes clear back to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Verse number six, Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Uh, What's the story here? Yeah, imagine for just a minute, Pat, if you you pick whatever president you liked in the last 25 years. Imagine if that president said, I am more important than George Washington, Mm. Abraham Lincoln, or any president previous. He would be laughed out of office. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Moses was the George Washington of their, of their nation. And, 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 and so here comes Jesus and saying, I'm more important than Moses. And you begin to understand the radical claims of Jesus. And then you realize, oh, it wasn't just Moses. You can go on through the core verses. He did the same thing with David with the temple, with the Passover lamb, with the Sabbath itself. And suddenly you realize the majesty and even divinity of Jesus to make such a claim. Number seven, 1 Samuel sixteen seven. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Uh, again, Jesus, as, the, as that verse is applied in the New Testament, you see Jesus making a claim to be not just David, but superior to David. So we've already talked about that, but, but this actually has another implication for me personally. Because David, he, he broke more of the Ten Commandments than Saul did, yet Saul was rejected. That gives me hope because my relationship with God is not based upon my perfection of behavior. I make mistakes, mistakes that for some I'm very ashamed of, and yet it's not the heart I have, it's the heart I'm after that determines how God accepts, guides, and leads me. And what I've found is if you have the right heart, then your biography doesn't have to determine your future. Verse number 8, 2 Samuel seven twelve. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Explain that one to us, Mark. The, the importance of, uh, of that particular verse is at least twofold. Number one, God has a plan. He's always had a plan. And when you lay that verse next to the genealogy of Matthew, and, and I get it, genealogies are typically seen as boring, but oh my goodness, when you see the meticulous nature of God moving major historical players down, it's like pawns on a chessboard, and God has an end game. And in Jesus, it's checkmate. God has a plan for the entirety of the history of the Bible leading to Jesus, and He has a plan for every single person's life. 
And even the tragic moments of our biographies, which are matched in the genealogies, God is there with a tapestry that you can only see from the underneath side. But he's doing something beautiful and powerful in you. I think a second implication of that is that we live in a kingdom, not just a church. I love my church, but it's just one church is part of a bigger kingdom. If you're part of a church, you're a member. If you're part of a kingdom, you're a citizen. If you're part of a church, then you, you, you might you know, call yourself a Christian. You're part of a kingdom. You're royalty. In the church, the leader of the church is a preacher. The leader of a kingdom is King Jesus. My guest, Mark Moore, the book, Core 52. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Thanks for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Judge Carolyn Parr was our guest in the first segment, talking about her book, Love's Way. And then Mark Moore. What a wonderful session with him on Core 52. That's his new book. Make sure you get a copy. Uh, Lots of material, a lot of meat there. Um, Please check out my latest book. It's called Character Carved in Stone. The 12 Benches Up at West Point. Uh, with a different word carved in the end of each bench. Uh, you'll enjoy it. You'll get some benefit from it. Mike Krzyzewski, the Duke coach, wrote the foreword for us. He's a West Point grad. Uh, Amazon, always a wonderful way to order books. Or barnesandnoble.com, booksamillion.com. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.